0: This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. Gary Winogrand is a legendary street photographer whose work influenced generations of photographers. Though he achieved recognition for his work during his lifetime, his work fell out of favor for a time, especially as the fine art world's interest in street photography waned. But he was saved from obscurity thanks to a series of posthumous exhibitions of his work, some of which included photographs from the thousands of rolls of unprocessed film and processed film from which contact sheets had never been made. Books and exhibitions have helped to secure his place in the history of photography, but there was a scarcity of content about the photographer himself. But there were no diaries, no substantive material to gain a better understanding of such an important photographer. That was part of the challenge that documentary filmmaker Sasha Waters-Fryer faced when she decided to make Winogrand the subject of her next film, Gary Winogrand, All Things Are Photographical. Though she interviewed many people who knew Gary, it was the discovery of a personal recording of Winogrand and another famous photographer that offered a glimpse into the man behind the camera.
1: Early on, when I was inter- starting the first round of interviews... I discovered that the photographer Jay Maisel had recorded audio tape conversations with Gary when he visited him in Texas in 1975. And those had gone to the archives. Gary's archives are at the Center for Creative Photography in Tucson, at the University of Arizona in Tucson. Once I heard about those, I thought, okay, this is going to be great because it's just two guys like hanging out in a diner and they're talking about their wives and their ex-wives and their children and teaching and photography and friends they have in common. And it's just this great like unscripted insight and window into like what Gary's like and how his you know, his sense of humor and just sort of how he relates when he's not like giving a lecture or giving a formal interview.
0: In the documentary... Sasha examines the life of the photographer using many of his famous and lesser known images, and she doesn't shy away from examining his more controversial depictions of women. But she also manages to reveal a more gentle, personal side of Gary, who preferred you know him more from his work rather than who he was as a man.
1: He didn't I mean he didn't like a lot of um interpretation right he really talks a lot about how photography for him is light on surface and he's not interested in psychologizing himself the photos etc so maybe he would see this film and think you know no way this is going way too you know getting too much into the personal and but i do think that especially with the in retrospect with sort of being able to look back from a different time period it's important and interesting to think about the work and him, and sort of how they relate to their own era.
0: We'll talk to Sasha about how she got approval from the family for the documentary, and the obstacles she faced in getting the film completed. And later, I'll tell you three stories that helped shape the way I see Bullish. Welcome to The Candid Frame. Well, um, Sasha, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show.
1: Thank you. Um, I'm excited to be here.
0: When I saw the uh, the trailer for the documentary, I didn't hesitate to reach out and, and say, okay, I want to talk to this lady, because uh, I can't talk to Gary. So right. uh, I think that this documentary is going to provide me and a lot of other people a greater degree of insight into you know just a, a great photographer. I know that you were familiar with his work from you when you were in college, but it was a, a retrospective that came through, I think, San Francisco in the early yes. 2000s that sort of reintroduced you to, to Gary's work. And I'm, what was it about the work that you were seeing that created that spark that you wanted to learn more about who he was?
1: Sure. Well, I studied photography as an undergraduate myself. And he was an artist who was just really important to me. I was in New York. I grew up in New York. So those images were just so incredible. And also the way that he was able to incorporate wildness in the frame, like that there's all this chaos happening But yet formally, he holds it together in the best pictures. And that's something Erin O'Toole talks about in the film as well. She was one of the curators of the San Francisco Mama Show. Mm. So that work was influential when I was in college. And then, you know, I hadn't really thought about it. And when when the retrospective came out, I was like, oh, right, Gary Winogrand. I used to love this work. And I went back and looked at my books that I have of his. And I thought... You know, sometimes when you're really interested in or excited about something when you're in college and then you go back 25 years later, you're not as interested. You know, you think, okay, well, this was something I cared about as a young person, but I don't really care anymore. But I had the exact opposite experience where I looked at the work and I thought it really holds up. It's still really exciting, even if street photography is, is sort of outside of the museum and gallery world right now. There's still a huge community of people who care about it. So I wanted to dig in. And I just felt like there should be a film about him. It, so it was surprising to me that it didn't already exist. You,
0: you mentioned that part of the attraction was that you were from New York and that yes. you likely found things that were very familiar with you to, to you. Uh, that you saw in yes. his photographs, but was there something a little more visceral? Because I think when I when I hear people discuss Gary's work, there's there's several different schools. There's one that talks about his composition, his mm-hmm. tilted frame, which he insisted wasn't tilted. Right. Um, there were, and there are others that think more about sort of the subject matter that think mm-hmm. about cultural window that he provided to us then and now. Sure. But for you personally, as you took a look at the photographs, can, was there a more specific, specific or more personal thing that sort of drew you to those photographs?
1: Well, I think when I was studying photography, I was really interested in street photography and f- kind of photographing the world around me. And one of the things I think is really interesting about his work is when you first encounter it, in some ways, the images look really easy, like Mm -hmm. so natural as if some of these dramas that are happening on the street, if you were just out with your own camera, you could capture them too. And that was one thing, particularly with the book, The Animals, was very inspiring to me. So those are the pictures taken mostly at zoos and at the aquarium. And I remember I would go and try to photograph at the zoo, and it's actually really hard yeah. to make an interesting picture at the zoo where you're getting that interaction between people and other people and animals and these little dramas that are unfolding so i think that was part of it too realize recognizing the challenge as a photographer that he was so good at capturing over and over again tell me about
0: approaching the family sure. about you know creating the the, the documentary because as you said there hadn't been a documentary done so tell me about the process of reaching out to them and explaining what you wanted to do wanting what you wanted to do and convincing them to trust you on that.
1: So the estate is controlled by Gary's widow, Eileen Hale, and the gallery that mainly represents Gary is Frankel Gallery in San Francisco. So I went through them in terms of reaching out to both Frankel and Eileen and they were very open. They they said, you know, send us a proposal, let us know what you're thinking about. And so I was able to do some research before sort of reaching out and and giving them the written proposal. And then also Thomas Roma, who's a photographer, he was my photography professor and he was a younger friend of Gary's and also was one of the curators for the MoMA retrospective in the 80s. So because of my longtime friendship with Tom and his family, I wasn't sort of coming just out of the blue, out of nowhere. I knew people in common I mean, a lot of the people who I interviewed, you know, we knew people in common. And so I think because of that and because of the proposal that I had written and they knew that it was going to be not necessarily not critical, but very, you know, that I was a fan of Gary's and that it would really be looking at the work and thinking about him as an artist, that they were very open to it.
0: You just suggest that the idea that some people may have is what your intentions are behind it Mm -hmm. and that... The families or the people who are responsible for the legacy of the, of the artist, be it a photographer or anyone else, can be very protective. Of, uh, sure. Uh, so, you know, how much of that is sort of a consideration when you're making a film with respect to being completely honest, but not mm-hmm. avoiding sort of the more complicated aspects of a person's life?
1: Well, I think Eileen in particular, his widow, you know, she did, she does want to protect his legacy and his children as well. But they also, they had a very realistic view of who he was as a human being. So it wasn't this sense of like, oh, we're just going to sugarcoat it. And that seemed just really clear early on just through conversations with them. I I do think Gary's a very unusual photographer in that So many other photographers do their own editing, do all their own printing, and the work that's available maybe after they die is pretty limited. And in Gary's Mm -hmm. case, because of the two retrospectives where other curators went in and were able to find their, you know, find things in the contact sheets and put out this posthumous work, that precedent had already been set as well in terms of it sort of being him being very unusual in that way that other editors have gone in and, and looked at the work.
0: Yeah, you know, when you start a documentary film, I would imagine that you have a general idea, especially since you have to write a proposal in terms yeah. of what your approach is going to be and and what you think the narrative is. But in speaking with other filmmakers, they often tell me of a moment when. They discover what the story truly is sure. what the actual you know what the bones of the film mm-hmm. uh, is actually how it's actually going to manifest itself tell me about that sort of the beginnings and that moment when you realize okay this is how i'm going to tell this particular story
1: well i think there were two key pieces one was you know as i'm sure you know there's very little like archival material of gary there are a couple of recorded lectures there's a this great tape of him teaching that was taped in the 70s down in texas a couple of interviews he did one with bill moyers but it's pretty finite in Mm -hmm. terms of what's out there and it's all like public performance you know so there aren't any diaries there aren't any other letters that we left behind however early on when i was starting the first round of interviews I discovered that the photographer Jay Maisel had recorded audio tape conversations with Gary when he visited him in Texas in 1975. And those had gone to the archives. Gary's archives are at the Center for Creative Photography in Tucson, at the University of Arizona in Tucson. Once I heard about those, I thought, okay, this is going to be great because it's just two guys like hanging out in a diner and they're talking about their wives and their ex-wives and their children and teaching and photography and friends they have in common. And it's just this great like unscripted insight and window into like what Gary's like and how his, you know, his sense of humor and just sort of how he relates when he's not like giving a lecture or giving a mm-hmm. formal interview. So that I knew would be really, really important in terms of just using as much of his voice as I could to, to tell the story, but just also to like bring him to life as a, as a character. And then the second piece of it was Tom Roma in his interview talked about a really interesting important discovery that he made in the contact sheets when he was editing the first moment retrospective and so i don't want to give too much away about that but there is this sort of discovery that he makes that comes out at the end of the film that that sort of that the story builds up to and makes gary i think a more complicated and in some ways sympathetic person and artist
0: that can be the the Sort of the the fun part of it, mm-hmm. can it be? You know, you can go in, you know, with all these ideas, but then you get that that little bit of information that sort of allows you to rethink, sure, and gain a much better perspective on 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 your take on the film.
1: Yes, I mean, I think pretty early on, I knew where it was going in terms of the ending. I think with documentary, it's so hard to know how how. I mean, with biography, it's often. It's it's easy to do it chronologically. I wasn't sure Mm. I would do it chronologically, but then it just seemed to make the most sense. But there is this whole piece that happens after he dies and then sort of how people deal with the posthumous work. And I knew that that would need to be sort of at the end and then going back, sort of working my way toward that in a narrative sense.
0: The the film is is dominated by Gary's photographs. You have Mm -hmm. plenty of interviews with other people, um, but the choice to use uh, the photographs as much as you do, was that sort of a practical solution to the fact that you didn't have a lot of on-camera footage and material of Gary himself?
1: It was, but I also knew that I wanted to use a lot. I mean, it is, it's a lot. It's like 400 black and white photographs that don't really move. And part Mm -hmm. of the reason there are very few moves is because the one of the conditions of using the photographs with the estate was that you always show them all full frame, so that and that's why there are very few verticals because verticals kind of look odd in that wide cinematic frame. So there are yeah. a few verticals where I cut into a close up, but for the most uh, most part, you're just seeing the full frame static. And I wanted to I, I wanted to use a lot of photographs also just to like enhance that sense of how much work there is and so much of it is amazing not every photograph in the film is completely amazing or completely resolved but I think that even the ones that are only 75 percent there they're really worthwhile in terms of what we can learn from them about his process and and how often he actually did make really incredibly compositionally amazing photographs.
0: Many of us, especially those of us who have an affinity for street photography, know Gary primarily from his work. Mm-hmm. And I think to some extent, that's the way he wanted it. Yes. <laughs> um, you start the film with a quote, uh, which you can share with us, with respect to how he wanted to be seen or not seen. Mm-hmm. And from your very various conversations with people, how did you come to understand what what that meant?
1: Oh, that's such a good, hard question. I mean, I think that the his his closest friends who I interview touch on that and speak to that. And certainly he didn't I mean, he didn't like a lot of interpretation, right? He really talks a lot about how photography for him is light on surface, and he's not interested in psychologizing himself, the photos, et cetera. So maybe he would see this film and think, you know, no way. This is going way too. You know, getting too much into the personal, and but I do think that, especially with the restro- in retrospect, with sort of being able to look back from a different time period, it's important and interesting to think about the work and him and sort of how they relate to their own era. For sure. I mean, mm-hmm. I will tell you, one person I really wanted to interview was Lee Friedlander, and Lee Friedlander, like Gary. Doesn't like to talk interpretively about photography. Doesn't really give interviews, and mm-hmm. I just could not get him to do it. He would not do it. Although he has seen the film and is very supportive of it. So yeah, I've like, tried
0: to get him <laughs> on this show, and I have yeah. a friend who's a personal friend of them. And uh, yeah,
1: yeah, I know it's given- <laughs> it it just doesn't I know. So Tom Roma is Lee Friedlander's son-in-law, and and I was like, come on, we were gonna we gotta help me get him. And he said, you have a better chance of Gary coming back from the dead and appearing in your film. than you <laughs> I know he said. <laughs> So it's not going to happen.
0: For people who are not familiar with Gary, what's sort of your, your elevator pitch in terms of who he was as a, as a photographer.
1: So he was considered one of the most important photographers of his generation. So this would be in the sixties and the seventies, incredibly prolific, influential street photographer. And I think he was so influential that it's we've almost at this stage can take him for granted. So one thing that comes up in the film, for example, is the book Public Relations, and this idea that he went out and made all these photographs of scenes that were staged to be photographed or to be filmed. And that's something we just take for granted. So someone says in the film this idea that you know, of a of a, a scene where everybody's with cameras or the photographers taking pictures of other people taking pictures, it's like a cliche now of photojournalism or of that kind of focus of street photography. But he was really the first one who was looking at how media events are being staged and presented and showing that to us in the form of these photographs. So that was not an elevator pitch. Sorry, that was too long, but...
0: <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's good enough. That's good. It's podcasting. It's imperfection is accepted. <laughs> no, but I think that's, that was a fascinating part of that book, because I think that was one of the first books that I was ever introduced to, Gary. Mm-hmm. And I think it had been oh, probably 15, maybe 20 years after it had been published when I first saw it. But even then, even when I first saw it, I, I was, I was uh, really surprised from the... To see that, especially during that time period, because as you said, uh-huh. that was rarely seen. Everything was sort of set up. yes, And it seems like he was very... One of his sort of intents was being able to sort of bring down the facade, not only in that photograph, but in a lot of other photographs that he created.
1: Certainly. And one of the things he was doing once he moved to Los Angeles and sort of at the near the end of his life was photographing on film sets. So there are photographs, there are a couple photographs in the film that he shot on the set of Annie. He was friends with the director, John Houston. And uh, I think he okay. actually also traveled with him and shot on the set of the movie against all odds. So he was really looking at, you know how these things are being staged for the cinema as well, and from that l a perspective,
0: oh my God, I can't believe that uh, that's funny that you mentioned the Annie because I actually was on set for a couple of uh, times, really for that. but I didn't even know who Gary Winogram yeah. was at the time. so I may have just walked past him completely oblivious. <laughs> um with with respect to, he's supporting himself as a as a photographer street photography then and now was never mm-hmm. particularly lucrative so he had to you know turn to doing some photojournalism commercial work but he was really resistant to wanting to 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 do that what what was his relationship to, to that work as opposed to the work that he's more popularly popularly known for
1: sure so he did he did photojournalism and worked as a stringer for a number of magazines pretty early in his career and throughout the 50s was doing that, you know, and also doing his own work. And then he moved into more sort of editorial and advertising in the 60s. But at a certain point in the pretty early, I mean, early 1960s, he just decided, I don't want to do this. I think he felt like it interfered with or conflicted with what he was trying to do in photography. So one thing he says in the film in a conversation with Jay Mazel is he talks about how advertising is about solving problems and art is about stating a problem, not necessarily solving it. Sort of stating a problem, Mm -hmm. investigating a problem. But he was, I think he felt that the, the editorial, the advertising, the journalism, it was taking away from what he was really interested in with photography. And so he did go on to take a teaching job. He taught first in Chicago for a year, and then he taught down at the University of Texas at Austin for a number of years. You,
0: uh, you had an opportunity to talk to a lot of people who knew Gary. And from the few people who I've talked to, they have a really strong affection for yes. him. But as you had all these conversations and you were gaining all these insights, in terms of the filmmaker in you, how did you have to conduct the interviews, and how did you how did you know what to mine for? Because you could talk to these people for hours mm-hmm. and get all these ins- insights into Gary, but they wouldn't all necessarily provide you sort of the meat that was necessary for the film. So how, you know, because I, I interview people all the time, mm-hmm. but I never really have to think about taking, oh, just five minutes of a, or even 30 seconds of a, an hour conversation and using it as part of my final piece.
1: Well, so part of it was so for someone like Leo Rubin Fine or, or Aaron O'Toole, who they were the curators of the SF MoMA show. I read the, their catalog essays. I read other things that they had written. And I knew that part of what I needed from them was just, you know, sort of exposition, sort of things that would explain the timeline or what was important about the show, um, New Documents at MoMA in 67, for example. So it started off, the interviews would start with that sort of like factual going through of certain things that I, I knew I needed to hit in the timeline of his life. And then as things got more comfortable, go more into the personal stories or anecdotes that they might have or so forth. And then with other interview subjects, I was more interested in them speaking to, let's say, the time period. So Matthew Weiner, who's the creator of Mad Men, although he has some wonderful insights into Gary's work as well, and also Laurie Simmons, who talks about how photography changed in the 80s and this sort of rejection of street photography and move toward more work in the studio and more fine art photography and also just the art market and how that affected Gary's work. So it sort of depended on what I needed to cover in the film. But I also had the advantage of starting, you know, I I filmed six interviews in August of 2015, and then the others were sort of spread out. So the last two interviews I filmed in April of 2017. So I would have those six interviews and start editing and then think about what else I needed and who I might be able to talk to, to sort of fill in some of the gaps.
0: I've been very grateful to everyone who's come on board as a new Patreon supporter or made a donation over the last few weeks as we try to reach our goal of 100 new Patreon supporters. But it's also been the messages and support that I've received which have been especially encouraging. There are so many hours that I put in every week for the sake of the show, and much of that happens in this bubble. But when I hear from you, whether or not it's tied to any financial support, it reminds me that there are people like you listening who really appreciate what we do here. It inspires me to work even harder to get great guests, improve the sound quality, and find more and better ways of serving you. A big part of being able to do all that is tied to our effort to gain 100 new Patreon supporters who commit to contribute $5 or more each month. Though $5 may not seem like much, it helps me to justify the time I dedicate to the show each week. You can help us to reach that goal by becoming a Patreon supporter today. Don't put it off anymore. Go to patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame. It does and will make a big difference. Thanks. One of the things about documentaries in, is fleshing out the person as a human being, not just as an artist. And Gary's relationship with women is something that you address in the film, yes. both in his personal life, but also as a photographer. Uh, let, let's talk first about his work. I'm thinking of his book, Women Are Beautiful, sure. which came out in, I think, 74, mm-hmm. or early 70s. Tell me about that, that book with respect to his his approach to photographing women the way he perceived them and what he had hoped that book would turn into.
1: Well, he thought that book would be a real moneymaker. So he had done a couple of books. He had had shows at MoMA and this book comes out in 1975 at the height of the women's mus- movement height of the women's movement um, he he did think it was going to be a big kind of commercial success but instead it was uh, it was critici- it was sort of a critical and a commercial failure i think in part because it's not a particularly well edited book i think the title was maybe unnecessarily provocative i think it it really upset people in that particular moment and so it really didn't do his work any favors. I mean, there are good images in that book, but there are also some images eh, you know that are not so great, so it's a it's a it's a mixed bag,
0: yeah, and I think part of the criticism for that book then and even now it was that that it was so much about the male gaze yes. on, on the female on the female form, that they were still uh, to a great degree being objectified. And I think that you and maybe some others have pointed out that part of that is that Gary was a man of his time. Sure. But still, it doesn't take away from the fact that it still can be problematic.
1: Yes, and that, and that comes up in the film. And I mean, I think in the film, a number of people, there's sort of a back and forth on the value of that book and its legacy. And it does break down along gender lines,
0: his relationship with his uh, with his wives and his children was also mm-hmm. kind of complicated, and I think one of the your intentions of the book was not, I mean, of your, of your film was not to sort of brush a, brush aside those those complex relationships, right. because uh, too many times when a when a male artist is the focus of a documentary or some other sort of um, retrospective piece, they're told, they were great artists, not a great parent, not a great husband, but oh well, let's get on exactly. to the stuff that's really important.
1: Right. So one of the things I wanted to look at was, you know, how he was struggling to find a balance between being an artist and being a husband and being a parent, and being a person in the world and and how it's hard for him, just like it's hard for other people and women artists. And I, don't, I, I think he suffered as a result of not being able to figure it out. You know, I think Susan kismarek mm-hmm. talks in the film about how he really didn't want to get divorced mm-hmm. The first or the second time, and the family was very, very important to him. So he was always trying to figure out that balance between family and work.
0: Yeah. And you have uh, his son yes. um, do some original music for the, uh, for the documentary.
1: Yes, Ethan uh, is just an incredible musician. He's amazing.
0: Oh, tell me about what insights you got from the family in terms of who Gary was, Mm -hmm. because that's that's something that many of us have never really been privy to. What did you discover that surprised you?
1: So, the only person I actually interview on camera for the film was Gary's first wife, Mm -hmm. um, Adrian, and that's mainly because the bulk of the film does take place in the 60s when they're still married and then the children from that first marriage are an important part of the film because there's a lot of 8 millimeter movie home movie footage of them but I did speak with Judith his second wife and then of course Eileen who's his widow and Gary and Lori and Melissa have all seen the film and they've given feedback I mean I think in some ways I decided not to interview the children because often when you see documentaries and the children are interviewed they have such a different perspective and it's and it's just mm-hmm. sort of like well this is how he was as a dad but they're not necessarily thinking about the art and also in the film leo rubin talks about this idea of how parents don't know who their children are and children don't know who their parents are and that idea felt really central to me so in some ways i was i was interested in hearing the wives and ex-wives perspectives a little more than the children's perspectives but the children's perspectives did definitely inform the end of the film just in terms of feedback they gave on the edit yeah
0: cuz it's it's sort of like a you know a fishing expedition to some degree cuz you are Trying to discover who this person was to give an accurate reflection uh, in the documentary. I mean, it's not going to be completely hundred percent accurate because it's impossible. But you know, I think that uh, it's one of the challenges that I really appreciate about anyone who tackles uh, a subject, especially with a little sort of raw material from which to work with. How much of that is sort of a concern as you go through the various edits in terms of being true to the story but trying to be as fair as you possibly can
1: well definitely getting feedback from you know friends fellow photographers students showing rough cuts and getting a sense of where people are bored by the story or where they laugh or where they're being critical that was really crucial and certainly there was actually a cut last summer. So like in July of 2017, I had a cut that I was pretty happy with. And a few people said, you know, it's way too hard on Gary. It's, it's, it's not sympathetic enough. You're missing, you know, for example, that he had these great friendships with women and that women also really loved him. And that, and so I felt like, okay, I need to go back in there and figure out a way to make him a little more sympathetic. Although I, at this screening I did last night in Virginia, someone asked me, Do you think, someone asked me if I thought I made the film too sympathetic. I said, well, I think it is sympathetic, but without sugarcoating,
0: I think it's 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 made a little more complex because of the times that we live in right, right. now, and how issues in terms of women rights, and women's rights, and objectification of women and, and uh, sexual abuse is really prevalent in in our conversation right now. Sure. So the work of Gary, especially in a documentary that explores that part of his um, part of his legacy. Can be quite loaded.
1: I agree. And I think the title of the book, like I said, Women Are Beautiful, it's such a it's just the title, it's just so problematic, right? <laughs> but I mean he did he photographed women, but he also photographed men constantly. Like you see all these photographs of businessmen, for example. He's looking at men, he's looking at people, trying to figure out his own place in the world. So sure, some of the pictures of women are maybe they're salacious or they're curious about you know, women's bodies and the way that they're being revealed and performed in the street because, of course, women are out in the street and in a way in the 1960s that looks totally different from even just 10 years earlier. But it's important that we have a document of that, that record as well.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the most interesting things I, I learned from just doing the research for this, for this conversation that we're having was that the series that he did at the zoo were sparked from uh, him being recently divorced. Mm-hmm. And that was where he spent time with his children. And that was, for me, was very revel- revelatory because it provided me a perspective of those photographs that I never would have considered otherwise. Uh, I had imagined that he just decided to go out and shoot and, and understanding that it was part of his personal time with his, with his kids added a much different perspective to those images than I had before.
1: Yeah, I think it changes. The way you can think about those photographs, when you just think about the context in which that he's with his children, it's the weekends, and he's going out and shooting because that's what he does all the time. And then Mm -hmm. at a certain point, he realizes, oh, I'm on to something here, and now I'm really going to focus on that thing. But he's there in that space because he's with his kids.
0: When I um, read about people who are working on documentary films, sometimes the analogy I've come up with, it's like... uh, being a single parent and trying to raise a kid on limited means.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a good one. And
0: <laughs> so tell me about, you know, the various challenges that you faced in trying to get this film from initial initial idea into having a completed film.
1: Right. Well, it did take 5 years from the research stage until now, which in in some ways is great because I actually the editing process is so long the interviews are long as you know when you do an interview to go in and look at the transcripts and figure out how to cut it down and move things around so the time frame was in some ways kind of a luxury And that was also part of it was financial. So the first thing I did was once I had the permission of the estate, I wrote a grant to the National Endowment for the Arts and I got a media arts grant, which enabled me to shoot the first six interviews. And then that allowed me to sort of keep at, you know, edit something longer that I could use for fundraising. I did a wonderful, I did a successful Kickstarter campaign. It was not wonderful, actually. I mean, Crowdfunding campaigns are really, really stressful, but it was, I mean, it was a nail biter. So, but it was successful at the end. So that was incredibly helpful. And then I got another grant from um, a documentary fund, a Derek Frazee documentary fund based in Philadelphia. So it's just kind of putting these pieces together and going along, along the way.
0: So you mentioned that the crowdfunding was a big part of getting the funding and it was stressful. What, what 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 was it about it was it stressful? Was it meeting the goal by the time frame or was there something else?
1: It was meeting the goal by the time frame but it was also so much of it was about just pushing it out there and asking people for money in a way that I just wasn't personally comfortable with. Like I'm a department chair in a school of the arts and I love to advocate for my students and my colleagues and try and get resources for them. But it felt, it just felt hard to be like, I'm going out to people I know and Posting on Facebook and emailing people personally saying, can you please support this project? It was, it definitely pushed me way outside my comfort zone.
0: Would you do it again?
1: I mean, I probably would. It's the kind of thing where you look back and you're like, well, I could probably do this again. (laughs) (laughs) But it was, I mean, I think it was really crucial I think also in convincing PBS American Masters to support the film because it will be on, it'll air on PBS in early 2019. And I think when they saw that the crowdfunding campaign did well, they realized, oh, there is this audience for street photography. And it's not just this older photographer who's passed away and this work that's in the past that's not relevant, that it's really part of this contemporary conversation around street photography, but also just around Digital photography and Instagram and the proliferation of people just photographing their lives all the time.
0: Yeah, one of the things that you've said about you know being a filmmaker or just being an artist is the importance of the people that are around you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And tell me about uh, about h- how you perceive that, and and what are the kinds of people that you think are important to have, not only as collaborators on a project, but you know just in general in your in your creative life.
1: I think people who are, you know, who show up and are willing to watch a long rough cut and give you hard critical feedback. And that is there's something collaborative about that. And I you know, I have I work in this incredible department with with photographers and other filmmakers. And we all try to be really supportive of each other's work, but not give each other a pass, right? And mm-hmm. and push each other. And I think, you know, my husband's an artist also, and I think probably the downside of all this is that it's hard on our kids because we're always thinking critically, mm-hmm. you know? So when a 10-year-old comes up and's like, how do you like this drawing? It's like, well, you know, it could probably be better if you do this, this or this. You know, 10-year-olds don't want to hear that. <laughs> like, no, so I think, and I also really value friendships that I've had since college. So because I studied photography in college, I'm still in touch with people. Jeff Ladd, in particular, is a photographer who helped a lot with the research of this film and also and just really pushed me to make it better and better and better.
0: do you Do you do much of your own research or do you solicit the help of others in terms of um, going in deep with your okay. subjects?
1: I would say with this film, I did the majority of it. I mean, the contact sheets were, would have been impossible to do alone. And I certainly, I haven't seen all of them. So I had for certain things, I had students who were helping me. And then Jeff Vlad helped with a lot of the picture research and the contact contact um, sheet research. So, but I do do a lot of it. Because I think it's important, especially with proposal writing and grant writing, to be able to incorporate that research.
0: Yeah. yeah. Speaking of, of the photographs, I mean, Gary is sort of notorious for having left behind thousands of unprocessed rolls of film.
1: Yeah, more than 6,000. Uh, and,
0: and, yeah, when he, pa- when he passed away, many of which that ended up um, being shown in the, the retrospective exhibition uh, later on in his life but with respect to you know your choices in terms of uh, of shots there was so much to choose from not just the, the the photographs that were probably very familiar to people but also more obscure images tell me about the process of going through an overwhelming body of work and and narrowing it down to a number of selects you do include a number a hundred several hundreds in the uh, in in the documentary but that doesn't mean that uh that's an easy process.
1: Yeah, so there are about 400 photographs. A lot of them are the classic photographs that people would recognize. They might not even know who Gary Winogrand is, right? So the Marilyn Monroe or the Elliot Richardson at the press conference, which is the one with all the the guys sitting at a table surrounded by tape recorders and microphones or the woman with the ice cream cone. So I certainly wanted a lot of those iconic photographs. And then others are driven by maybe which book um, is being talked about at the time, right? So the animals or women are beautiful. Those photographs are specific to those publications, but certainly I knew I wanted to include work that hadn't been seen before, particularly some of that late posthumous work, because I think there's good work that, had, you know, that just for whatever reason didn't make it into either of the other two retrospectives. And so it seemed important to counter a little bit, of that narrative about how the L.A. work was always bleak because I Mm -hmm. think it's complicated. There's bleak work from New York in the 50s and very energized work from L.A. in the 80s. So he's always going back and forth between these poles of of looking at things, both celebrating life and then looking at it with a more critical, almost pessimistic eye.
0: Yeah, that that period after he left New York has always been looked at relatively harshly mm-hmm. even the stuff that that was only discovered after he sort of passed passed away even before that and sometimes i wonder how much of that was related to the environment that he was shooting oh absolutely cuz cuz los angeles is such a different place from new york where the activity on the street even 30 or 40 years ago was was, was sparse relative to the bronx and manhattan mm-hmm. and brooklyn you know and how much of do you think the the judgments of the photographs are related to how he was experiencing these different these different places not just as an artist but just personally
1: i think a lot of it is connected to his relationship to those places his own mobility because he becomes less mobile by the time he's in la but i think it's also that the world is changing like by the 80s even in new york you don't have the kind of theater of the streets That you have in the 50s or the 60s right there's like the mollification of America starts happening in the 80s and that's where people are going and they're becoming a little more isolated from each other and I think there are fewer of the kind of dramas that you would see in New York in the 60s or 70s are playing out in public by the 1980s because the whole country is more turning inward so I think that's part of it as well.
0: In the 60s, John Sarkoski from uh, the Museum of Modern Art in New York sort of showcased him, Lee Friedlander, and uh, Deanne Arbus mm-hmm. in, in, in an exhibit, which sort of brought his his work to to the fore. But by the time, into the 80s, he had sort of fallen into the shadows as compared to those, those two. Do you think that was largely related to changing taste, or was there something about Gary himself that helped sort of relegated in to increasing obscurity.
1: I think in a lot of ways it was because of John Jarkowski. I mean John Jarkowski is this almost, you know, this paternalistic figure. He's like a father figure who who makes Gary's career and puts him on the map and calls him the most important photographer of his generation. But Jarkowski really rejected that late work. I mean he just he just thought it was a failure. And if in the mm. catalog for Figments of the real world which is that that retrospective show. He's from the 80s. He just, I mean, he's generous towards Jerry, Gary in terms of the overall arc of his work, but he really, he's very dismissive of the late work. He just thinks there's too much of it. There is a lot of it. Too bleak that he just went off the rails. And I think that that Jarkowski opinion informed opinion for 30 years after that. I think mm. just nobody contested Sharkowski because he was the, the master, the expert. That
0: must have been devastating for Gary. I know you we don't well, know for I sure. I mean, I think
1: I, I, was, this is after Gary passed away. So mm-hmm. I think that Gary was already in Los Angeles, and I think they had a good relationship. But he, you know, I don't know what work Sharkowski had seen oh, okay. before he passed away. But certainly after he passed away, you know, he just it was um, just was not interested in it.
0: Now that you had time basically to spend five years with Gary in a very intimate way, when you look at his photographs now, do you see them differently?
1: You know, I am still just amazed by them. And, and also, when this film, to see it projected on a big screen, it's a totally unique way to see Gary's work. So because I just was at a screening last night, I'll look at a photograph that I've seen, I mean, literally hundreds of times. Hundreds of times because I edited the film. And then I'll see it projected on the big screen. And I'll see some little tiny detail in the background or something or uh, that I've never noticed before. So it's just amazing how much content is in those photographs.
0: And do we have a schedule? I know that the film is going to be out in 2019 on PBS. Yes. But do we have a, a date yet?
1: I don't know when it will be on PBS. Sometime in spring of ni- 2019, I believe.
0: Well, my last question that I pose to uh, each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that
1: one photographer be and why? You know, I'm going to say... Justine Curland. She's a photographer, uh, a female photographer based in New York who makes work about um, her family, who travels across America. And I think, and she works in this kind of realist mode in color. And I think she takes that legacy of, of, of realist photography, like sort of 1970s real, realist photography and makes it contemporary and exciting and has really interesting things to say about Contemporary America from a from a female perspective.
0: Oh, great! Well, Sasha, thank you for coming on the show. And and
1: thank you so much. This was great.
0: We have a segment on the show where I share thoughts, ideas, and memories that may or may not involve photography. We call it the last frame. And a little warning, there is some language here that some may find offensive. So if you're sensitive to that kind of stuff, you might want to take a pass on this one. Now, I know a little about bullying. As a kid, I got into my share of fights. But to be honest it's hard to describe them as fights they were more ass whippings whether it was my catholic upbringing or my father telling me never to fight or just downright fear i rarely fought back i know it's it was crazy thinking but my kid logic was that if i took a swing they'd get even madder i don't know what i was thinking they were already punching me in the face what more could they have done But it wasn't the physical blows that hurt so much. It was how I felt afterward. I felt angry and powerless and a great sense of shame that I couldn't defend myself. I think a lot about those moments because we live in a time when bullying has evolved and become more prevalent. It's gone from the playground and street corners to online forums, Twitter and Facebook, I have seen many friends who are writers, photographers, podcasters, and YouTubers receive some of the most hateful and disrespectful words you can imagine. They might not be getting punched in the face, but it nevertheless is intended to be hurtful and wounding. Like me, many of these people are putting out content not because we expect to become rich and famous, but because we want to be helpful. To pass along some of our experience, joy, and wisdom to others who share the same passion. But for whatever reason, there are some people who see this as an opportunity to put someone down rather than lift them up. I'm not immune to the hurt that such a behavior evokes. Every time I put out something new, be it an interview or even a new book, I'm always a little concerned about how it's going to be received. And when those reactions are negative or even scathing, I have to admit that it stings a little. But I've had three events in my life that have taught me a lot about bullying. First story, I'm in high school, and there are a few members of the football team who are constantly being disruptive in this one particular class. The teacher was a young woman who wasn't completely comfortable and confident about dealing with a room full of young men. I and a few other students complained about this to a teacher in another class, and word got back to these guys. And then right after one class, right before lunch, I was confronted by these guys. There was one in particular who I guess felt that he had something to prove. He singled me out and told me that he'd heard what I said and that he was going to kick my ass. With a room full of people watching, he said I was to meet him in the baseball field after school and he would teach me a lesson. And then I heard myself say, no, let's just take care of it right here. I don't know why I said that or where it came from. But when I did, I saw a moment of confusion and surprise on his face. And so I kept going. I said, no, I'm not going to wait. We're going to settle this right now. And I started moving chairs and desks. Clearing the area in the middle of the classroom, nobody knew what to make of me. I'm I'm sure they thought I'd gone crazy. He said something to intimidate me, and I just put my hand in his face, and I I began shaking it. Oh, I'm so scared of you. Look, my hands are trembling. And then it was over. He scoffed, mumbled something under his breath, and he and his boys walked out. They never bothered me again. Story two. I'm visiting a friend over a weekend in Tahunga, a small community in the San Fernando Valley. I'm sitting on a bench on a street corner waiting for a bus to take me home. A truck full of white guys passes by, and they're all looking at me. And I look back, thinking that maybe I, I know them or something. A couple of minutes later, they've turned around, and one of them, a big bulky guy, probably another football player, walks up to me and asks me, what the hell am I doing mad-dogging him? Now, mad dogging, for those of you not familiar with the term, is the act of staring someone down, trying to intimidate them. And I wasn't doing anything of the sort, but that didn't mean anything to him. This guy was big. He had three inches on me and at least 15 pounds more muscle than I have ever had. There are three other guys behind him, and I was completely alone. It didn't look good. Then he says, I don't like N-words in my town. Now, I had certainly heard the word before, but this was the first time that it was directed at me personally. It didn't make me angry, but I suddenly understood why he had looked at me as they passed by. And when he said that, I didn't say anything. I didn't express anger. I didn't become defensive. I just stared at him, my eyes locked onto his. And all I knew in that moment was, don't blink. Don't turn away. He might well beat the hell out of me, but I wasn't going to give him the satisfaction of cowering in front of him and his friends. And I guess when I didn't give him what he wanted or expected from me, and prompted by his friend who kept pulling on his shirt, he got back into his truck, and they drove away. Third story. I'm in college, where I live in a co-op, a building that normally accommodates about 60 or so students. As part of living there, you take on certain duties to offset the cost of rent, food, and utilities. And during this particular summer, I had taken the job of house manager, so I'm there to run point on any issues that come up. So one day, I'm informed that someone has parked their car in front of our narrow driveway. No one can get in and nobody can get out. I ask, but nobody knows whose car it is. So I call for a tow truck to move the car. But before it arrives, the owner comes out from another building, and when he finds out that I've called a tow truck, he begins threatening me. Now, he's not a football player this time, but he says he knows martial arts and he's going to take me out. Eventually, things are diffused and he moves his car well before the tow truck arrives. A week or two later, there's a knock on the door to my room, and there's this guy, who I don't immediately recognize, asking me to look at something outside. We walk in front of the house, and he points to this car, which has at least two flat tires. Now I know who this guy is. So he's pissed. He's sure that I'm the one responsible for those flat tires. I had nothing to do with it, and i tell him as much. But I'm thinking, considering this guy's winning personality, I'm sure that there would be no shortage of suspects. Now, one of my housemates just so happened to have a compressor. So he offers to inflate his tires and we all move on. And you might think that was the end of the story. Not so much. So because this guy lives next door, I bump into him on occasion. And each time he tries to mad dog me. He stares me down with this ugly look on his face as if he's letting me know that at any minute he's going to take me to the ground with a roundhouse kick or something. I know exactly exactly how he's trying to make me feel, but I just ignore him and keep moving. And then one day I'm walking up the steps to my house and he walks past and says something along the lines that I better watch myself or he'll beat the hell out of me. And I turn around and I start yelling at him. I say, no, you're either going to kick my ass now or you're going to step off. Either way, this shit ends now. He kept walking. And I went right into my house, and that was the end of that. So when I see and hear people being terrible to someone, not just me, I'm reminded of those moments and those three guys. Because each of them had the opportunity and the strength to physically hurt me. Even if I had managed to fight back, I know I would have likely been at the losing end. But a fight didn't happen because they didn't really want to fight me. They just wanted to feel more powerful than me. They wanted their words and their threats to intimidate and frighten me, to make me feel small and less than. That's what they really wanted. I've gone through life and have experienced moments of real pain and loss and hurt, the kind that have literally brought me to my knees, sobbing. I have been through the worst and have come through it whole. So to my thinking, there is nothing anyone can say or do that comes close to the darkest moments of my life. Those kinds of people just want others to be as miserable as they are. And it's not just because they're bad people. I think a lot of them just don't know any better. They don't realize that every time they tear someone else down, they're just digging a hole deeper and deeper for themselves. That's not just sad, but such a waste of life. But the good thing is, whether by luck or by grace, we don't have to go down that hole with them. And that's the last frame. Thanks to Sasha for spending time with us. You can find out more about her films, including screenings for her film on Winogrand, by visiting pieshake.com. And keep an eye out for the airing of the film on PBS's American Masters in the coming year. I've recently released two books. The first is an ebook. Lessons from the Street. It's about some of the mistakes that I made as a photographer and how they made me a better photographer. It's just $7 and you can purchase it directly from the website and the other is my follow up to my first book, Chasing the Light, and it's now available for purchase. It's called Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow and teaches you a way to create better photographs more consistently. I believe it's a book that will change not only the way you make photographs, but also the way you see. You can order and download the ebook right now, or place a pre-order for the softcover when it comes out in December. When you place your order from the Rocky Nook website, use the promo code PERELLO40 to receive 40% off the list price. Check out the website and the show notes for the link. And once you read it, please write a review in the Amazon store, whether or not you purchased it from there. It plays an important part in my promoting of the book. And if you want to keep up with all things Candid Frame, sign up for our mailing list and you'll receive free copies of three of my previously published ebooks. We also love the reviews people write about us in the iTunes store because it really helps to spread the word. Thanks to Craig Engelking from the U.S. for his five-star review. And as I said earlier, you can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. Or you can make a one-time contribution via PayPal. You'll find the links for both in the show notes and the website. Thanks to Jesse Loneski, Robert Schwiebert, Chris Nagel, Bill Mallette, and Gokhan Kukorova for their recent contributions. I appreciate it so much. And if you want to easily access every episode of the Candid Frame, download the free Candid Frame app. It's available for both Apple iOS and Android. And did I say it's free? Yep, it is. Download it today. You'll find it where everything else is in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer, Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at IbarianX. And this is IbarianX, and this is The Candid Frame.